Today's sermon is going to be about the biblical character Abraham. After a quick overview of Abraham's life, I'm going to ask each of you to imagine yourself as an Israelite listening to Genesis for the very first time. God commanded Abraham to move from his home in the east to the land of Canaan in Genesis chapter 12. Bible scholars call these verses the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Of course, Abraham obeyed, and God did, in fact, bless Abraham. Abraham became very wealthy in the land of Canaan. God even blessed Abraham in military victory. In Genesis chapter 15, God reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant. We will talk about this a bit later. What is important right now is the response from Abraham, which the Apostle Paul would later use to prove that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. Verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Paul bringing this concept forward into the New Testament demonstrates that salvation in the Old Testament really was the same as it is today. The Old Testament saints were saved believing in the coming Messiah. We are saved believing in the Messiah who already came and died on our behalf. If you are here today and have not experienced the salvation in Christ apart from works, please come see me after the sermon. Just like us, at that exact moment of our salvation, Abraham fully believed God. However, also like us, Abraham occasionally wavered in his faith post-salvation, as we shall see is the case with Abraham. The story of Abraham is really the story of two Abrahams. There is the historical Abraham, which the Bible describes in story narrative. There is also the larger-than-life Abraham in the mind of the ancient Israelites. If you read between the lines, it is clear from the author of Genesis is well aware of the idolized version of Abraham that his audience thinks of. What the Bible uh, does not actually say who wrote the book of Genesis, tradition holds it was Moses. Although the exercise I'm about to ask of you could apply to almost any generation in Israel's history. Jesus himself dealt with a generation of Jewish people who felt that they were okay in God's sight just because they had Abraham as their father. Remember I said I had an activity for you. <clears throat> I would like you to imagine a historical setting during Moses' time. Step into the sandals of an Israelite wandering in the wilderness of Sinai. Now, I'm going to do it physically. You do it in your mind. So who are you? An Israelite living in the time of Moses, wandering in the wilderness of Sinai. You had a hard, yet consistent life. You grew up as a slave in Egypt, but later you witnessed the miracle of passing through the Red Sea. You were there that day when Moses smashed the Ten Commandments out of anger. You survived God's wrath that day but now you are living under the law known as the law of Moses. 
In this hypothetical scenario, Moses wrote the five scrolls we know today as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses then began to teach from these scrolls. The main thrust of the scrolls was a law code. However, the first scroll, Genesis, or beginnings, was really more of an introduction to the law code. The scroll of Genesis gave a history of the interaction between the two parties of that law or covenant. Those two parties were your ancestors and, number two, God himself. Listening to Genesis, you come to find out that your actual history differs from the oral traditions that you may have heard. When Moses teaches, you are always on the edge of your seat in so many various topics. The topics of greatest interest of you fall under these three categories. The first one, similarities between your life under the Mosaic law and events in history. Number two, events challenging your preconceived understanding of Abraham as father. And number three, the Abrahamic covenant. In regards to the first topic, similarities between your life and historical events, it started way back in the creation narrative when God rested on the seventh day. You know, just as you do now, because you are an Israelite living in the time of Moses, wandering in the wilderness of Sinai. In fact, every morning you wake up and you go out and gather bread from heaven called manna. Except not on Saturday. Just like God did, you rest on Saturdays. That's the Sabbath. Another historical similarity in involved an ancestor of yours named Noah. When Noah brought the animals into the ark, he brought two of each unless they were clean animals. He brought seven of each clean animal into the ark. A differentiating between clean and unclean animals was something that Moses taught you to do when he read from the scrolls of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Noah later sacrificed the clean animals to the Lord. You get to see clean animals sacrificed too every time you visit the Lord's special tent called the tabernacle. Like Noah, Abraham did not live under the time of the Mosaic Law, but also like Noah, Abraham did some of the things that would be required later in the law. And these things include circumcising his son and paying the tithe. In Genesis chapter 17, God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. That's different than the Abrahamic covenant. This is another requirement of the Mosaic Law found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This makes perfect sense to you because all the male members of your family are circumcised. Because you are an Israelite living in the time of Moses, wandering in the wilderness of Sinai. Remember I said God even blessed Abraham with military victory. After Abraham defeated four kings with only his servants as soldiers on his side, he met with Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem would later be called Jerusalem. Melchizedek was priest of God Most High, and Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. You know all about tithes and priests. As the scrolls of Moses authorized Moses' brother Aaron and his tribe, the tribe of Levi, that's also Abraham's grandson, to be priests. It was their job to do things like present the burnt offerings and collect the tithe. This was called the Levitical priesthood. What really surprises you from the scrolls is that it appeared Father Abraham wasn't going to have any children at all. 
In the story, Abraham is promised a son, but both him and his wife, Sarah, are in their 90s. You listen as Moses explains that Abraham and Sarah tried to help God out by having Abraham sleep with his servant woman, Hagar. However, the son conceived from that relationship is named Ishmael. This story has you very confused, not only because it challenges your belief that Abraham is such a great father, but also you know that your ancestor's name is Isaac. Isaac's name means laughter. Allow me to re read a couple stories where both Abraham and Sarah laughed while wavering in their faith. Reading from Genesis chapter 17, verse 15 through 19. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be your name. And I will bless her, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And Sarah, who is nine years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Genesis 18, verse 9 through 14, is the other passage where, where we see some laughter. Verse 9, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure in my Lord being old also? <laughs> the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. While you are focused upon the friction between your pre presuppositions about Abraham and the actual history of Father Abraham, maybe about the third time you hear Moses read the story, it's really Genesis chapter 15 that resonates with you the most. If you recall, I mentioned in Genesis chapter 15 uh, is the chapter where God ratified or formalized the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 15 begins with God's declaration that he will be Abraham's shield and his reward will be great. Abraham immediately jumps to the question of the elephant in the room. We read in Genesis 15, verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? The idea here is that since Abraham did not have a child of his own, one of his servants stood to inherit Abraham's significant wealth. Having a child of their own is what Abraham and Sarah wanted more than anything else in the world. But as the years ticked on, the notion seemed laughable. God's response to Abraham was both bold and reassuring. We pick up in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. 
after God's reassurances, God convinces Abraham and convinces you because you are an Israelite wandering in the wilderness of Sinai in the time of Moses. And his patience will pay off in a much more amazing way than just using words. God instructs Abraham to kill five different animals. He was to kill a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. He was to cut each of the animals in half and then place the halves of the animals across from each other so as to create a path in between them. The two parties in the agreement would then be able to walk in between the cut animals. Abraham and you, with your Israelite sandals on, would have recognized this form as the normal way someone would cut a covenant in the ancient Middle East. When Abraham prepared the path of blood between the animal parts, surely he expected to walk between the pieces. This would indicate, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I ever transgress this covenant. In a plot twist, Abraham falls into a deep sleep, and then he sees a smoking torch and a flaming oven. They're both symbols representing God himself passing between the pieces. What is the escapable conclusion? God established the Abrahamic covenant with himself. Let me repeat that. God established the Abrahamic covenant with himself. This means that the Abrahamic promises, including the establishment of Abraham's seed or lineage, possession of the land of Israel, God's protection, is not conditioned or contingent on Abraham or Israel's obedience. Rather, it is unconditional, contingent upon the integrity of the one who made the covenant, God himself. Here's a video that helps explain the pageantry of the Abrahamic covenant. So God appears to Abram again, and he takes him outside and says, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he says to him, So shall your offspring be. God also promises to give Abram a land to live in. But God's promised this kind of stuff before, and Abram wants proof. So God proposes a covenant between the two of them. Abram then goes to prepare the ritual ceremony for the covenant between them. Abram brings a heifer, and a goat, and a ram, as well as a pigeon and a turtle dove. He kills them all and cuts the larger ones in half, and the blood forms a pool between the pieces. Wait, what? Yep, you heard right. This was a very common practice in the desert communities of the Middle East, especially in marriage covenants, and is even still practiced today in a number of locations. It's also where we get the term cutting a covenant or cutting a deal. Now, when two parties would come together to make a covenant, they would kill these animals and let the blood ooze out between the pieces. This pool of blood is known as a blood path. The two parties must both walk through the blood path to symbolize the solemn agreement they have made. The greater party goes first, followed by the lesser, and they both say to each other, May what was done to these animals be done to me if I do not keep this covenant. So Abram waits for God, the greater party, to act. And the text then reads that a thick and dreadful darkness fell, and smoke appeared and passed between the pieces. This smoke is understood to represent the presence of God. Some examples of other places where God is represented by smoke in the Bible include the smoke that covered Mount Sinai when God came down on the mountain in Exodus. Also, each time God came to the tabernacle or the temple, it filled with smoke. God led his people through the wilderness by a cloud of smoke. Isaiah says the Lord comes in dense clouds of smoke. Also, the prophet Joel and the apostle Peter both speak of God coming with billows of smoke. And let's not forget the book of Revelation, where the temple is filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power. So, as the greater party, God defines the terms of the deal he's making with Abram. God's end of the deal is this, I will give you land and descendants, one of whom will be the Messiah. And Abram's end of the deal is this, you and your descendants must walk before me and be perfect. Really? Perfect? 
God wants Abram to be perfect? Neither Abram nor his descendants were by any means perfect. I mean, we've already seen that whole wife-sister scheme Abram tried to pull in Egypt. He wasn't even trying to be perfect. But it's Abram's turn to walk through the blood. But if he does, he'll be condemning himself and his descendants to death. But God stops Abram and walks through a second time in Abram's place in the form of fire, implying, if either one of us break this covenant, then I'll die for both of us. God sentences himself to die in the place of Abram and his descendants if they ever sin, which if you're familiar with the Jesus story at all, you already know is exactly what happens later. God damns himself for us. Now in the Bible, fire almost always represents God. Some examples of God represented by fire in the Bible include his appearance to Moses in the burning bush, his appearance as a pillar of fire to guide his people in the desert. Also, Elijah was carried away to God by a chariot of fire pulled by horses of fire. According to Exodus, the glory of the Lord looks like a consuming fire. The prophets write that God's tongue is a fire and the word of God is like a fire. Also, it was tons of fire that represented God's spirit in Acts 2, and Hebrews 12.29 declares that our God is a consuming fire. So God appears as a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, and God walks the blood path in Abram's plate. Hey, does that make sense? See the, the, the picture of that covenant? The idea here is that whoever walks through these pieces, whatever happened to those animals will happen to us if we transgress it. And Abraham never walked between those pieces. It was God manifested by both fire and smoke, making a covenant with himself. So therefore, the, the promises are not contingent upon what Abraham or what Israel, what Israel does. And you being an Israelite that you are, realize that this covenant that God made with your father Abraham is completely different from the covenant God made with Moses. The Mosaic covenant has lots of blessings and curses, but the Abrahamic covenant has only blessings for his covenantal people. So what was the whole purpose of imagining yourself as an Israelite living during the time of Moses wandering in the wilderness of Sinai? Especially when the sermon is about Abraham, a man who lived about 600 years prior. First of all, considering how the original audience understood a topic is generally important in biblical interpretation. Secondly, I intentionally wanted to contrast two time periods and more importantly, two covenants. Just as the conflict needed to be resolved between the folklore of Father Abraham and the fact that he and Sarah had doubts when they were in their 90s, so there is a huge conflict between the extremely conditional Mosaic covenant and the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, which must ultimately be resolved. Requirements like Sabbath observance and tithing needed to revert back to being done under the goodness of one's heart again, rather than under fear of legal penalty. The Mosaic Covenant itself was temporary and needed to be replaced, as we can see with examples, such as the limited Levitical priesthood. Remember that priest king who Abraham paid the tithe to? Psalm 110 tells us that Messiah will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is discussed in the book of Hebrews. Uh, chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews is often considered by scholars to be the Melchizedek chapter. And in that chapter, uh, verse 22, we read, By so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Compare this to Luke twenty-two twenty, which says, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. 
from a technical theological perspective, the Mosaic Covenant or law was never abolished, but rather we are merely not subject to it in this day and age, as Paul writes in Romans 6.14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. However, the Mosaic Covenant is still in full effect because it is an eternal, unconditional covenant. This means God still sees Israel as a special, called-out nation. This means all the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant are still applicable today and carry on into the future. The main thrust of those promises was establishing a nation dwelling within a promised land. However, there are other promises, such as God's blessing and God's protection. The fact that the tiny little nation of Israel exists today, surrounded by enemies on all sides, is a modern miracle and proof that God is honoring his covenantal promises to Abraham today. There is no natural way to explain the phenomenon of Israel having been reestablished after its populace was dispersed into all the world and then re-centralized once again. In fact, it's been 18 and a half centuries. The only possible explanation is divine intervention. God's hand in reestablishing Israel as a nation has clearly been seen since May 14, 1948, when Jewish agency chairman ben, uh, David Ben-Gurion proclaimed the modern state of Israel. I'm guessing most everyone here is familiar with Mark Twain. You likely know him not just from Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, but since he was once a newspaper man in Virginia City right here in northern Nevada. Well, Mark Twain visited the British Mandate of Palestine in 1867. At that time, the land was desolate. Twain writes, The further we went, the hotter the sun got, and the more rocky and bare, repulsive and dreary the landscape became. There was hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. Twain would not be so disappointed with the glory of Israel found today. The independent website, thefactfile.org, lists these interesting facts about the modern state of Israel. Israel's $100 billion economy is larger than all its abutting neighbors combined. It has the highest standard of living in the Middle East. Israel inventions include the cell phone, voicemail, the first antivirus software, and Pentium computer chips. 24% of Israel's workforce holds college degrees, third in the world after the United States and Holland. Israel has the world's largest wholesale diamond center. Per capita, Israel is the first in the world in books printed, museums, orchestras, entrepreneurship for women and seniors, absorbing immigrants, and in eating their fruits and vegetables. We could learn something. Israel is the only country in the world to have revived a dead language and then make it the national language. That's Hebrew. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. Israel is only one of two countries in the world that began the 21st century with more trees than it had in the beginning of the 20th century. This last one would certainly have changed Mark Twain's opinion of the Holy Land. I, along, alone, I, along with my lovely wife Abigail and our children, had the pleasure of living in Israel for a year. We were there. Now that was 20 years ago. The countryside was beautiful with forests planted all around. It continuously made me think of Isaiah's words from uh, chapter 35, verse 1. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a rose. 
However, Israelis I've spoken to recently have told me it has improved so much in the last 20 years that I wouldn't even recognize it now. I believe I've demonstrated, both from biblical evidence and from modern-day empirical evidence, God is actively blessing the Jews and the modern state of Israel today. Why is this important? First of all, this is setting the stage for prophetical end times, when God's main focus will be on the nation of Israel even more so than it is today. Secondly, there are those who teach uh, that the church has replaced Israel as God's covenant community. Those who teach this replacement theology are clearly wrong. The fact that the Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting, unconditional covenant definitely proves this. When people say that God has given up working with, uh, working with Israel as his distinct nation, they are essentially attacking God's integrity. This unmistakable way God has been blessing Israel since 1948 reinforces what we already know from having studied Genesis. Paul, in Romans 11, verse 17, writes, And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, therefore, the Bible not only does not teach that the church replaced Israel as God's vessel of focus, it teaches the opposite. It is that the church has been grafted in to Abraham or into Israel. In other words, we are not Israel. We are a distinct entity from Israel. We are the church. A few weeks ago, Pastor Larry preached a sermon on Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel's 70th week. There is an indefinite amount, a gap of time between the 69th week and the 70th future week when God will resume his focus on Israel as a nation. It should be humbling to us that this seemingly unimportant gap is the church age. This is where we live. I would like to leave you with one last thought before wrapping up today's sermon. One of the initial promises God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and by extension to Israel, was, I will bless those who bless you, and it will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The United States was Israel's greatest friend and ally ever since 1948. Even before that, there were many instances where the U.S. was a blessing to the Jewish people. George Washington even wrote in his letter to the Jews of Rhode Island, May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants. While everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, there shall be none to make him afraid. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why America has been unquestionably the recipient of God's blessing over the years. Look at the nations that have been adversarial to Israel. Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Egypt, Iran. If you're keeping up with world events, you know they're not doing so well. I just mentioned that we lived in Israel 20 years ago. One of the most beautiful places we visited was a town called Caesarea Philippi. Here is, uh, here's our family at the spring that's in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, also called Banias, um, has this spring. It's surrounded by flowers, waterfall. It's gorgeous. This is where the New Testament event, which is called the Great Confession, occurred in Matthew chapter 16. We read from verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, 
Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, By who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. While I was there and contemplating what went on 2,000 years ago, I noticed several religious niches carved into the cliffs. You see that beautiful spring at that time was an important religious site for the Romans and their idols sat up here in these niches. I imagine how outraged and prideful Romans would be if they could look into the future and see today. To a time when the Roman Empire no longer exists. To a time when nobody worships their holy gods anymore. How they once lorded it over Israel and stomped all over the holy places of Israel's God. Now today, Israelis are back in their land. Now today, Israelis stomp all over the areas once consecrated to the Roman gods. Besides the Roman Empire, look at the other world empires that were once hostile to Israel, such as the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. If you've studied history, you know they don't even exist anymore. President Obama did not have a good record blessing Israel. In 2016, he had the U.S. abstain from blocking a resolution that declared Israeli settlements illegal, including those in East Jerusalem. Furthermore, President Obama actively sought a nuclear deal with Iran, Israel's most nefarious enemy. As vice president, Biden was not directly involved in President Obama's actions toward Israel. It is still yet to be seen whether President Biden will be pro-Israel or not. Whichever the course, we can be assured that if the United States continues to be a blessing to Israel, then blessings will follow. Let's hope and pray the opposite will happen. Now, after writing this sermon, uh, some recent events uh, happened. Back in May, the uh, terrorist organization Hamas fired about 3,100 rockets into Israel. Have you heard of Iron Dome? So Iron Dome is that missile defense system that when Hamas or a different one of Israel's enemies, they have many, fire a rocket into their territory, it fires another rocket up to uh, blow up that rocket that was fired at Israel. You, you may have seen the, the pictures on the news where it'll show those streaks of light with the rockets coming in and then the swervy streaks. That's the Iron Dome missiles trying to intercept those. And I'm happy to say that uh, the Iron Dome knocked out 90% of the missiles that posed danger to Israel. Funding for the Iron Dome which was supported by President, Ob uh, President Biden, overwhelmingly passed the House of Representatives recently. It's expected to pass the Senate. While certain members of the so-called squad vehemently opposed Iron Dome funding, we can give glory to God that the United States was once again able to be a blessing to the children of Abraham. Let's give thanks to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Old Testament, which tells us this wonderful stories about how you interacted with people like Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thank you that we can read about your covenants and how you established your special called out uh, nation of Israel. Thank you that 
uh, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has become surety of a better covenant uh, than the Mosaic covenant. Uh, thank you that we are able to um, see blessings in the United States as a result of having been a blessing to Abraham's descendants. Uh, thank you that uh, we're, we're seeing this Iron Dome um, funded, that, uh, that Israel may be protected from those missiles from their enemies. And we continue always to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.